over again. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to our second podcast of the new year. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. On behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff at the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Alcohol and drug use is so accepted as a part of college life that there have consistently been ratings of the top party schools for at least as far back as my college days, I hate to say in the mid to late 80s. An unofficial motto for college life is often work hard, play hard. The two hundred. 2019 study by researchers at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan, which is not on that top 25 list, reported that 47% of college students had used drugs of any kind in the past year, and alcohol use on campus includes 78% of students, with about a third reporting binge drinking and drunkenness. Colleges can often be difficult places for students in recovery or seeking recovery from substance use disorders. The first collegiate recovery program was started at Brown University in Providence in 1977 by Dr. Bruce Elliott Donovan and has grown significantly to the present. Interesting, the New England Regional uh, Addiction Technology Transfer Center, a clearinghouse for training, education, and technical support for the substance disorder workforce, is located right there at Brown. Other milestones include Rutgers University in New Jersey, then opening the first recovery housing for students in 1988, and the first discussion of collegiate recovery in a peer-reviewed journal entitled Recovery in the Dorm was published in the Chronicle of Higher Education in 1995. I've seen it noted that an estimated 2.2% of all college students identify themselves as being in recovery, and when we look at our country's largest universities like Texas A&M, University of Central Florida, and Ohio State, each with between 60,000 and almost 70,000 students, we're talking about 1,300 to 1,500 students identifying themselves as being in recovery. At one point, American college enrollment was over 18 million students with nearly half a million in recovery. Those are some big numbers. Our guest today is here to share her expertise in collegiate recovery to help us better understand this recovery pathway for many students. Kimberly Bolden is a senior director of Safe Campuses with the SAFE Project, which stands for Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic, a nonprofit organization that has served over 300 universities seeking to address the impacts of addiction on campus and empower the students in recovery. She holds a doctorate in higher education administration and has experience in university admissions, marketing, advising, curricular assessment, and teaching innovation. In addition to her advocacy work in the collegiate recovery space, she's currently collaborating on grant-funded initiatives to decolonize computer science and engineering education. Outside of academia, she plays bass in a local punk band, and I really wish I could use our time to talk about that. But I'd like to welcome Kimberly Bolden. Kim, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. Let's kind of begin by bringing our listeners into a kind of a shared understanding of what collegiate recovery programs uh, what do they often look like? That's a great question. Um, as you had already mentioned in your intro, um, college is typically seen as a recovery hostile space. And so um, we typically talk about collegiate recovery programs as supportive environments within higher ed that reinforce recovery. Now, what would that look like? Well, there are really a lot of different types of collegiate recovery programs. Here at Safe Project, we like to prescribe to the idea that there's no right way to do collegiate recovery. Uh, every campus is a little bit unique, which means that what works on those campuses is also going to be unique. 
But generally, what collegiate recovery entails, um, typically there's a dedicated space on campus where folks can come. Maybe they have meetings there once a week. Uh, students can come and hang out, drink coffee, um, et cetera. We do like to see dedicated staff in these programs. Perhaps it's a licensed alcohol and drug counselor that can check in with students, meet with them uh, periodically. Maybe it's a student affairs professional who helps them um, manage an event of sober calendar events, um, things of that nature. But the most important piece about collegiate recovery programs is that they have a peer focus. As we know, the opposite of addiction is connection. And so it's really key that students can find each other and make those connections on campus with other students who have similar stories, backgrounds, or lived experiences as they do. Um, some other pieces you may or may not see in a recovery program include recovery housing, recovery ally trainings. Um, some recovery programs are student organizations, student clubs on campus, and some of them are tied to academic programs like addiction studies. So they come in all shapes and sizes, and we really want to promote anything a university wants to do to increase recovery awareness. Well, it kind of goes along with what's happening in the field. We've, over the last few years, started to recognize that there is not a specific pathway that people should follow, that people will determine what's best for them uh, and follow that pathway. And universities are kind of doing that, I hope, within in uh, collaboration with their students and saying this is what would work. And we recognize in the field, although we've been behind kind of the, the eight ball in peer work, that we're starting to recognize the value of peers because as treatment is very short, recovery is much longer and peer supports can go on. I'm really glad to, to hear that that's part of the collegiate experience. In 2019, I saw an estimate of that there were about 138 different colleges and universities that had campus recovery programming. You had mentioned 300. Uh, or we, in your bio. And what's that number today? If you had to guess, I'm not sure if you have a number. Yeah, well, we've worked with over 300 campuses to implement resources uh, or to at least start the conversation about what they're doing and what more they could be doing. In terms of formalized collegiate recovery programs, uh, I think we're currently at 150 plus and growing in the nation. That's still less than I think 5% of all colleges and universities have a formalized, dedicated recovery program. Um, I think that we're only going to see that number grow. And I bring up demographic changes. If you know anything about uh, birth rates in the United States, there are just fewer 18-year-olds graduating from high school as there were 20 years ago. And so if universities want to maintain their relevancy and their enrollment, they're going to have to think of new student groups that they haven't traditionally served and serve them better. Students in recovery, as you mentioned, this is a group that has long been overlooked. And I think that universities need to start addressing and meeting the needs of these students on campus. The pandemic has um, posed a lot of challenges and opportunities. I think that because administrators were struggling to get classes online and meet students in new spaces, the conversation about how to support students might have been on the back burner. However, I think the pandemic also created a lot of opportunities. Um, if we were relying on students dropping in a center before, now we can engage students um, across different geographic regions and really build a, a community that has a low bar to access. So I'd say the pandemic has sort of shifted the conversation, but in ways that are really encouraging as well. Um, my assumption is that most campus recovery pro uh, programs come from a call by the students themselves. Would that be accurate? Or is that inaccurate? I think that's probably accurate. 
Um, here at Safe Project, we have a Collegiate Recovery Leadership Academy every year. We bring between 50 to 100 students from across the country together for this year-long opportunity where we support them as student, as student leaders and we empower them to go back to their home campuses and affect change on those campuses. Um, we give them um, information on how to frame a request to higher education administrators, how to demonstrate the need, how to navigate funding. And so we are seeing that a lot of the um, sustainable programs are student funded or student driven. But I don't want to take away from some of the great work faculty members are doing have been doing. You mentioned earlier on at Dr. Bruce Donovan at Brown, that was the first program that was a faculty member in recovery who started a program for others. Um, and we are seeing a lot of faculty and administrator involvement in the community college space as well. If you think about community colleges, students are revolving through those colleges a lot quicker. They may only be there for two years. So it's hard for a student to build a sustainable initiative. Um, those areas are where faculty are really shining. Um, one example that comes to mind is Minneapolis College in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. It's a two-year school. Jonathan Lofgren there is a professor in addiction studies, and he saw the need to support students on campus. And so while a lot of programs are student-driven, faculty and administrators are doing some work in that space as well. I think it's fascinating that at Safe Project, you're helping to build leaders uh, in this space, and that's going to carry over for them if they're young people um, as they move forward in careers. So they're able to uh, not only become leaders in something that's very personal to them and help them manage, but it's, it's a great skill to, to carry on uh, as they move forward. The need to serve those in recovery and, and, and those seeking recovery on campus is quite obvious, especially given the opioid numbers. Um, I don't want to forget about all of the other issues related to alcohol and things that are out there, but we are seeing significant numbers of opioids. Um, let's talk about campus recovery programs as prevention type programs. Um, what does it look like when they play a prevention role? Yeah, as you can imagine, Having a recovery savvy campus is going to help increase uh, evidence based screenings and intervention efforts as well. When students and administrators are all talking the same language and it's this recovery informed culture on campus, that's going to permeate into all of these other areas. I'm thinking um, Penn State had a late night programming that was sober programming for all, they had comedy acts and concerts late night on weekends, those kind of things help connect students who may be in recovery and looking for other uh, activities and events to participate that are not uh, substance heavy, but it brings students from across the, the campus to the table and sort of benefits everyone. Um, that said, more can be done. Uh, there is the Drug-Free Schools and Community Act of 1989, which legislated that every school, if they wanted federal funding, had to have prevention efforts in place. They have to have alcohol and drug policies. They need to enforce those policies um, consistently and they need to assess how their prevention um, efforts are working. While we've legislated the prevention side, we haven't said anything about the recovery side. And a lot of those prevention efforts aren't recovery informed. They're really punitive. Mm -hmm. uh, they're of the just say no type rather than bringing folks uh, in recovery to the table to help talk about what would meaningful prevention and intervention look like. Those conversations are happening, but we still have a long way to go. I know that when I was in college in the, the mid to late 80s, it was very punitive. Um, if you were, there were uh, 
dorms. There was no alcohol on campus. And if you were brought, you were brought to the hearing board and were threatened to be kicked off of campus housing. Uh, and it actually happened. There wasn't as much uh, uh, support in saying and recognizing if there was a significant issue or it was an event that somebody was involved in. Uh, right. We recognize that the data shows that about 92% of college students are under the age of 24. So there's still an adolescence with developing brains. What we know about peer pressure in that age group and how significant it is, although while we're in that age group, we'll deny it. Uh, there's a visible campus recovery movement, and does that help stem the tide of, of drug use and support those who may be, as we would say, pre-contemplative or contemplative? I would think so. I mean, the prevention community talks a lot about risk and protective factors as ways to um, mitigate use. I think we know one of those factors includes perceptions about peer use. Whether those perceptions are accurate or not, students are more likely to use if they perceive that their peers are using. And so by just having this sober programming on campus, this cohort of students who are proud about their, um, their identities and willing to share that story out, I think you fight that perception that everybody on campus is using. Mm. I, I I know that when we, we talk about different programming things, I had spoken earlier this year uh, or earlier in 2021 to a professor at Texas A&M who was doing some research on the use of CrossFit. Uh, and they were using CrossFit as a recovery space. And they were mixing individuals who were in their own recovery and individuals who were not necessarily in recovery. And the numbers that they were having, they were seeing some, some positive uh qualitative efforts she was working on a grant to to do some quantitative research but it was really fascinating for me to hear that um that just a regular campus activity with a different target population can really affect everybody positively in a prevention fashion absolutely i'd like to address something that you had mentioned that causes confusion among many people what is the difference between sober housing and recovery housing Oh, so, I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier that a lot of schools um, are trying to dabble in prevention, but they may not necessarily be recovery informed. And so many colleges will have sober dorms. That's technically any dorm with folks under 21 is a sober dorm because it's illegal to, uh, to drink when you're underage. Um, does that mean that there aren't substances found in those dorms? We know that that's not the case. And so uh, I've seen some schools have sober dorms uh, where family members are signing their kids up. They think, well, I want my kid to live in the sober dorm. And so students aren't self-selecting to be in those spaces. They're being put in those spaces. And that's not necessarily conducive for um, recovery or building community. The recovery residences are specific for students in recovery who have that identity and who self-select to be there. Um, I think that a recovery residence has a little bit more uh, safeguards and structures put in place, whereas my experience with sober dorms is that it's in name only. Yeah, you know, again, going back to my college years where it was all the dorms were considered sober because they were meant for anyone under 21. The apartment complex on campus was supposed to be for individuals over 20 and you could drink there or not, but it was to say that there was nothing going on anywhere it was it was kind of ridiculous and i'm not sure that at the time again 
30 something years ago, they really knew how to do that. And, and a re- recovery informed environment wasn't really on the, the table uh, at, at that point. Um, are there some examples where of uh, that, you know, of that where really active uh, recovery housing is playing a big role in the lives of students, like ones that stand out? Yeah, I know uh, Penn State has some really robust recovery housing. I mentioned them earlier. They also have a robust late night programming. So it's not just creating opportunities for students in recovery to connect, but sort of fighting that normalization of use on campus. Um, I also would mention Augsburg University. They have a 106 bed dorm. Uh, It's a mix of sort of dorms and apartments that's specifically for students in their collegiate recovery program. Um, And so there are schools that are dedicating space and staff and resources to support these students. One of the things I've seen in the community and in the the treatment world about recovery activities, sober activities, is a lot of them tend to infantilize the individuals who are seeking recovery um, with these simple day trips. And instead of really appealing to the intellect and the soul of these individuals and finding something that they really enjoy doing. Um, does that make a big difference when schools are planning activities that are exciting and fun for any student with the, uh, with the recovery focus? I mean, we hear a lot from our students in the Collegiate Recovery Leadership Academy. They say nothing about us without us. And so really, you know, coming back to that idea of peer-led, are students driving these initiatives on campus or are administrators prescribing the cure, so to speak? Um, I would say, again, if the opposite of addiction is connection, bringing in a speaker for an hour really isn't creating connections among students, but maybe having them do a ropes course or going bowling together would create more of that connection. And so my advice would be make sure that the students are leading the charge and make sure that you're creating opportunities for connection, that you're not just putting on, you know, a movie night where folks are going to passively interact. In 2016, Admiral Winifield, who who, uh, founded with his wife, the the SAFE Project, um, after they had lost their son, who was in college for just four days, um, he hadn't even attended a class yet, um, noted that he believed that colleges and universities wouldn't really want to see, have flyers up where parents could see that there were recovery or at that time, sober activities, promoting these activities because they like keeping the myth alive that we don't have those kind of students here. Well, let's talk about that kind of student. What does the data show us about students involved in collegiate recovery programming? Yeah, you mentioned that uh, 2% statistic earlier of students nationwide identifying in recovery. So first of all, I want to reinforce that it is absolutely a myth. Those students are on your campus. They just don't feel safe to uh, come out and share their experiences. You mentioned a campus of 50, 60,000. We're talking thousands of students in recovery. Even if you're a small liberal arts campus of 2,000, that's about 40 students that you could be serving. Um, And I would say that this is a DEI initiative. Uh, I think that universities do a good job about preaching diversity and why it's important to have folks with different lived experiences coming together to enrich each other's education and academic plans. Well, you know, recovery is a different lived experience. So this is an equity issue. Um, You mentioned the data. The data shows that students in recovery are more likely to graduate than their peers at the institution that do not identify as being in recovery. 
And they have notably higher GPAs than their peers, sometimes more than 10% on average, higher GPAs. Um, but just because the data shows that these students are doing better doesn't mean that there aren't still significant barriers. I think we need to look at policies on campus and see where we're creating barriers for students in recovery. I take admissions as one of those key spots. We know that in recovery, these students are going to outperform their peers, but their academic paths may be riddled with GPAs that fluctuated because of their use. Perhaps they had to uh, leave in the middle of a semester to go to treatment. And so I think we need to take a more holistic approach to looking at these students' academic transcripts and then supporting them once they get to college, because the research shows they will succeed. We just need to give them the opportunity to do so. So on any campus, let's say you have a campus of 2,000 people, if there's a group of 40 students who have an interest in something, the administration is going to have to listen to that. That's a significant amount. If if they said, we want to have a bowling club, they would pay attention to that. This is much more important and it's life-saving. And I really think that it's, um, as you at the Safe Project and Safe Campuses are teaching people to advocate for themselves um, to address some of those barriers. Who knows those barriers better than those who may have had to jump through the hoops to get through them? And we talk about, you know, we don't want those students on campus. We have to take the stigma away from that because the stigma is assuming that they're the, the stigmatic views that they're, they're going to be problems instead of they are a boon to the campus community. They uh, people in recovery are involved in things that they're positive role models for others. Uh, I think that that's important. And I think that we we miss that. Um, and I was fascinated by the GPA studies and the, and the things, but quite honestly, hadn't even thought about the admission barriers, not not coming from that environment. But I can see clearly uh, of what that would look like. Yeah, and I should mention uh, before we move on that we have to sort of rethink how we approach students that are justice involved as well. Um, students may be differently impacted because of their use in terms of their record. And I know that some schools are moving to ban the box as to whether or not you have a criminal record or a felony when you're applying to college. Um, but if I am a student with a past, that may that may turn me away from even putting my application out there. And so I think institutions can look holistically at the process, imagine themselves as a student in recovery going through that process and see where is the language and the hoops they're asking students to jump through, where is that maybe adding to stigma? And I think that uh, the schools don't see those hoops. They don't recognize them because they're coming at it from a different perspective of maintaining the certain academic level or students or whatever it may be. But again, have it recovery informed, having those individuals who understand what it's like and to be a part of the admission process, quite possibly mm -hmm. to help those students that say that they, they recognize that some of the things on their application process or application materials kind of stand out as something that they want to look further into and providing a little support to do that would be great. Um, I don't know if that occurs. I'm sure it does in other in some places. One thing that I I, I just came to my head and, and that we didn't you know talk about previously is oftentimes there's an expectation. Well, they can people can get you know college students can get re supports in the community where the campus is, but there's not always a good relationship between the campus community and the community at large. Um, do you see that as being a, 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 a 
something that's not taken into consideration uh, when we look at campus I mean, campuses are so resource rich. If you think about it, where else in your life are you going to be able to live in the same place where you get your food in the same place where you go to class in the same place where your friends live? There's so much at your disposal. And to say, well, recovery supports can be external. We don't make students you know, leave campus for their clubs or leave campus for their, their food. They certainly can, but we also incorporate those supports on campus. To me, the question isn't why should we, but why shouldn't we? It, it seems like such a low bar for us to pass. Um, and again, if we talk about diversity and inclusion, if you think about any other student group, could you imagine an administrator saying, well, you know, our LGBTQ students will have to go into the community to get support because we don't support that here on campus. It would just be out of touch with the 21st century. So why is it okay to say that about students in recovery? I, I think you're right. And I agree because when you look at the campus community, there are supports of all kinds. Um, there are spiritual supports on campus um, that may be interfaith. Um, there are academic supports. There are social supports. This is just another thing to, that, uh, another aspect of helping that college student get the full experience of being in college. Absolutely. And it helps with the social growth. Um, tell us a little bit about your work at the SAFE Project with SAFE Campuses. Yeah, so the, the team at SAFE Campuses, we have a number of initiatives. Um, the first I'd mentioned are those student development programs. So the Collegiate Recovery Leadership Academy, it's open to students in recovery. It's also open to recovery allies. So students who aren't in recovery, but who want to advocate for their peers in recovery on campus. Um, we also have internships. We take maybe uh, between 10 and 20 interns every year. Um, we have student voice liaisons. These are paid student positions. Again, nothing about us without us. We want students in recovery on our staff, bringing their voice to the work that we're doing so that we don't become irrelevant. Um, we also offer technical assistance to the administrators looking to do this work. So again, as we had talked about, when we're putting students um, at the forefront, talking about individual stories and having them really advocate for what they need, I think it goes farther with administrators. But we do have administrators who reach out on their own saying, we understand we need to do more. And so we have training, certificate programs, uh, webinars for those folks that are in the different tiers of leadership and who want to push the needle on their campus. Um, we're working, as I had mentioned earlier, on doing a better job of bridging recovery and prevention efforts because we know that there are dedicated staff members on campus who are doing the prevention work, but who can we um, tap into to champion the recovery side and make sure that the prevention work is recovery informed? Um, and then finally, there was some uh, grant funding offered by Transforming Youth Recovery uh, a few years ago. This organization offered $10,000 grants to schools that wanted to sort of kickstart this work. They have passed some of their resources on to us, and we are stu stewarding um, a nationwide survey and census that we run every year to get a, an idea, a finger on the pulse of where the nation is, what direction we're moving, and how we can do more Again, in a field that's got limited resources, where can we move that needle? But getting that data from a national perspective lets you look at trends and understand what's happening and also regional trends and things. So I think that, you know, the value of that and the importance of that is 
incredible. Oftentimes we'll look at data and say, well, let's look at the big picture. But there are a bunch of medium-sized pictures in the data that we have to pay attention to as well. Yeah, I think uh, it helps make uh, make collegiate recovery a little bit more accessible too, because sometimes administrators say to us, well, we don't even know where to start. And if we can point to, well, here's some of these things you're already doing. If you're having you know, sober events on campus, great. How do we make sure that they're recovery informed, that those students are leading those efforts? You don't have to recreate the wheel. You can just look at some of the things you're already doing and do them a little bit better. So you're coming at it uh, from a strengths perspective with the with the administration saying, these are things that are already in place. We can move them a little bit and, and to help improve the service for everyone involved. Absolutely. Where should our listeners go uh, for your website and to learn more? What's the website? And can you talk for a second about it? Yeah, it's uh, www.safeproject.us. Um, Safe Project is an organization has four key initiatives, safe campuses, safe communities, safe workplaces, and safe veterans. Um, obviously, I work with the Safe Campuses Initiative, um, and I would say that no matter what your role is in this space, there are resources for you on our website. Uh, I mentioned if you're a student in recovery, we'd love to have you involved. If you're a college administrator, we have resources for you. If you're a parent and you have a, a child or a young person with mental health or recovery needs, we have resources to help you navigate a college search. Um, so that you can look at what schools are doing and try to find out where a good fit for your child might be. So um, whether you are a professional, student, uh, higher ed administrator, we'd love to connect. And I think for individuals in the field, um, it's important that we understand about safe campuses and that we understand what's going on and have access to, to resources to answer the questions that, that we don't know. Um, before we finish up, Anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, um, I think that everybody in this field would agree that our work doesn't happen in a vacuum. There is a whole continuum of care. And so while campuses are just one aspect, one place where we are supporting students in recovery, um, we need to think about the entire continuum. And uh, I was a member of a professional outreach and networking group back in Minnesota. Um, and one of the professionals there always said, if you're in this room and you see your competition here, then you're in the wrong field. Uh, there is so much work that has to be done. Um, and I think that, you know, here is safe, safe campuses. We're trying to move the needle in this one space and of higher education. But we'd love to partner with folks because there's a whole world of communities out there where we can do more and do better to serve folks. And it's important to, you know, to recognize that what's working in one environment may be able, may translate to another, may not, but it may. So let's share information. Let's share resources as much as we can, because we have to remember what the focus is. And that's meeting the needs of the people who need services. Absolutely. And, and helping them navigate recovery as they see fit. So the more information we have, the better. Kimberly, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Um, and I hopefully we'll get to do another one. We'll talk a little bit more specifically about things. We'll see uh, where it goes. Um, you had mentioned the organization that you work for, the SAVE Project. Well, the executive director, Dr. Brandy Izquierdo, she's going to be speaking at a CCB conference in June. We've got all that stuff up on our website. So we look forward to hopefully seeing some people there uh, to talk, to hear Brandy talk. She is uh, uh pretty good motivator, I would say. 
And that's going to do it for our scope of practice today. I'd like to thank Dr. Kimberly Bolden for joining us and for all the work she does at the SAFE Project with our pal, Dr. Brandy. And come back anytime, Kimberly. Thank you for having me and thank you for the work you're doing. You're very welcome. We welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor, and I can be reached at info at ctcertboard.org for more information. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application, and we'll catch you next time, everybody. 